Take one pandemic, mix it with a lockdown or two, then print some money, lots of it. Add a house price boom, then a war. Fold it all together, and what do you have? A recipe for a cost of living crisis. An extra four to $5,000 every year for the basics. This is food, this is rent. When we see people who are paying such ridiculously high amounts for rent, the amount that's left over, and we're not talking about discretionary income for, for cappuccinos or a new pair of shoes, the, the money that's left over doesn't even stretch far enough for food. Never mind petrol. $3.30 a litre for 91. Ouch. Out of pocket, out of money. We are now currently at the mercy of what's happening overseas. Particularly those on sort of low and middle incomes, it certainly feels like a crisis. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly and today on The Detail, I look at all the ingredients for a cost of living crisis. Why things like Germany's phasing out of coal and nuclear power and China's zero COVID policy are hitting us here in New Zealand. And how can we ease the pain of soaring rents, petrol and food prices? Well, first, we're at the supermarket with Jessie Chang. She's talking to people about what they're paying to fill their shopping trolleys. This is our uh, monthly basics. And how much did that cost today? Today was $551. And how much more is that than usual? Well, we've got a lot less, but we haven't paid a lot less. The reason we haven't got as much this time is because the shortest stock. Is this kind of the worst that you guys have seen it? Yeah, I'd say the price rise is definitely the worst. Yeah. You know, we, we've, never, we've never checked prices. We never have to check prices. Today I wanted some lamb chops. I, I break them up so that we're not eating six at a time sort of thing. And I find that sort of ekes us out for a couple of weeks anyway. You know, and I, we eat leftovers and... We don't suffer. But I couldn't get the ice cream I like today. Yeah. It's a caramelised hokey pokey. <laughs> what item have you noticed that has risen the most in terms of price? Those sausages, because my husband likes that brand, they were up to 12 something and they've been usually about 10. But, and I mean, like the, the mushrooms, well, I, I buy those ones because they last longer. And I eat them out to my husband, you know. But they're quite expensive. They're $3 something. But A lot higher. Like, I think I'm spending about $50 more on groceries every week. Yeah, that was petrol as well. It's like, <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah. Is there anything that you felt like you've had to just go without? Um, no, because I think it's important to be eating well and staying healthy at the moment. I'm not skimping on food. I am... Um, Instead, cutting on other things. Don't really have money spare to do anything else. Um, and I'm driving a lot less. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's getting a little bit harder uh, recently, you know, just for the essential stuff. So, you know, what are you going to do? Unfortunately, everybody got to eat. And is there anything that you have just decided you're not going to buy right now because things are too expensive? Oh, probably my beer, to be honest. <laughs> So how has it come to this, that inflation is at its highest level in 30 years? Well, here to explain is political and economic journalist Bernard Hickey. He's the editor of newsletter The Kaka. The main three living costs are rent, food and fuel. 
So all of those have seen double-digit increases in prices, and at the same time, the incomes of those people have risen at best 5%. So in effect, people on the lowest incomes who are renters have seen their standard of living drop in real terms by between 5 and 10% in the last year. So we're talking about this this period of the last year in particular. Yeah. And actually a big bunch of that hasn't flowed through yet. When I say there's another, you know, 5, 10% cooked in that they're going to see over the next year. So, you know, if you took if you took 2 years of that, then there's at least 10 to 20% worth of um, you know, drop in living standards, real living standards because of it. And why do you say that we've got another year of it? Ah, because the the fuel price increase and the food price increase from the Ukraine war hasn't really flowed through into bottom lines yet. So, you know, 30% increase in uh, oil price, 30 to 40% increase in wheat prices, um, a whole bunch of other commodities have been hit. And we've yet to see the inflation come through yet from the logistical problems that are now mounting because of the, the war, but also because of the zero COVID approach of the Chinese government. It has curbed local outbreaks and saved lives with mass testing and tracing, snap lockdowns and travel restrictions. But it has come at a steep cost, with tens of millions put under strict lockdowns. Which um, I don't think gets enough attention or credit here, and particularly in the last few days, because they've shut down Shenzhen. Shenzhen, the technology manufacturing hub of China, will be shut down for the next week. Only essential businesses are allowed to open there. This is a move that's expected to have ripple effects on the global supply chain. And that also looks like they're going to shut down Shanghai, and that is dramatic. Why does that flow on to New Zealand? It's like the source of the Nile for the world's manufactured goods. And so when Shanghai and all of those ports around the southeast of China um, are shut down for COVID, and it could be quite some time because they're sticking with their zero COVID approach, that means a lot of those components in those manufactured goods which we've ordered or which are in the pipeline don't go into the pipeline. And so we have even more empty shelves and pressure on prices at the supermarket department store, Amazon, end of the chain. So that is actually going to affect prices because it means that there's going to be a shortage or absolutely nothing of that, some of these products. That's right. For example, I went into the local electronics discounter, whose name shall be not used, but it involves a lot of yellow and black, <laughs> and there was nothing discounted in the entire store. So they were like, you had all these signs that looked like a sale sign, but actually it was just an advertisement for the actual price. There was nothing, you know, this is 30% off or it's a special list today. There were no specials whatsoever. Yeah. So that's how price increases happen in a world where we expect everything to be discounted. Just suddenly it isn't discounted. You don't actually see price increases. You see the removal of discounts. The Prime Minister called it a wicked perfect storm. And it's a storm that's impacting people's lives. When she announced the cuts to fuel taxes on Monday. Reducing the fuel excise duty by 25 cents a litre and the road user charges by the same amount for a period of three months. 
how much is this due to external forces like the war in Ukraine? And how much is it due to stuff that is happening here in New Zealand, like the wage subsidies? Yeah, you could argue it's a perfect storm for New Zealand in that we have a combination of COVID-driven supply shortages. We have a COVID and climate change-driven issue in the energy markets. And then on top of that, you've got a global flood of cash into uh, money markets and in some cases economies in the last two years because of COVID. Billions of dollars to pay furloughed or laid off workers. Extra money in the bank accounts of every American, courtesy of Uncle Sam. That's all thanks to the historic stimulus package passed in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. Which is combined with supply shortages and extra demand from some of this cash into you know, higher inflation. The beauty of um, the situation from a political point of view is that there are so many factors on both sides, supply and demand, and from both sides of the planet. <laughs> so, so you can easily, if you're one type of politician, accuse the government of being responsible. But if you're the government, you can accuse you know, the world of being responsible. Mm. And both of you are right. Because it's happening everywhere else in the world, isn't it? It is. So our inflation rate, which looks like it's headed for 7% early this year, is um, not that different, really, from what we're seeing in the United States, parts of Europe. It's a little bit higher than in Australia, but uh, it's certainly um, not out of the ordinary and certainly is in tune with those countries where central banks have printed 10 to 20% of GDP in money. But where's all that money coming from? The government is not literally printing more money, but they are making more of it digitally in the form of good old-fashioned bonds. Collectively, all that printed money has all gathered together into a big pile and COVID and the war have effectively torched that pile and really got some heat into it. Just so I understand, as soon as the pandemic hit New Zealand, the government started pumping money into the economy through things like the wage subsidy schemes and uh, support for businesses. And so people basically spent, they were in lockdown, but they spent. And at the same time, there's a shortage caused by the supply chain crisis. And that means that there's a shortage of lots of goods, which makes them, people are willing to pay top price for them. Am I, am I right so far? Yeah, that, that's, that's broadly right. So $20 billion of cash went from the government into the hands of businesses in the space of just over a year and a bit. And in fact, it's still quite a bit, about $115 million every fortnight going in at the moment. And a good chunk of that uh, has been spent. A good chunk of it, though, has gone into term deposits. So when you look at the term deposits that have been deposited by um, businesses and by households, uh, over the last uh, two years, we've seen term deposits by households rise from $184 billion to $215 billion. So we're, we're talking about $30 billion worth of extra money just sitting in a bank account. And for non-financial businesses, that's gone from 89 billion to 114 billion. 
So that is $25 billion. So a lot of that cash that was printed has actually ended up sitting in a bank account, mm. but a big chunk of it has been um, spent. And also a lot of people feel wealthier because um, the value of housing is up 40%. And anyone who's owning a small business that um, is still solvent and uh, has a house or houses feels a lot, lot richer and have, for the large part, been spending more money um, because they feel richer. And that was the Reserve Bank's whole aim. That was its main tool for stimulating the economy. They printed $55 billion. They used that money to buy government bonds to lower long-term interest rates. That worked along with the removal of LVR restrictions to um, pump an extra 40% into, into the value of house prices. That created a wealth effect, which meant that a bunch of people who own homes felt richer. Richer, Many of them also had um, a good chunk of that $20 billion in cash from the government, which as it turned out, they mostly didn't need. Uh, it was a good idea at the time, uh, but it hasn't been clawed back. The government hasn't asked for it back, essentially. And um, you can see that in the profit numbers reported in the last year or so uh, through the national accounts and also through the IRD's accounts. It was an extraordinarily effective and huge piece of monetary and fiscal stimulus, which went into the hands of people who probably didn't need it. Uh, they haven't spent most of it. It's sitting in a bank account. And uh, they've also seen a permanent increase in the value of their assets, particularly housing. And they feel wealthier because of it. In fact, they've banked it and uh, they will punish anyone who tries to take it off them. So was it a mistake, this pumping all this money into the, into the economy? At the time, it seemed like a good idea because, you know, everyone thought we were going into some sort of economic Armageddon with unemployment headed over 15% you know, with the potential for a 20, 30% fall in house prices. And in that moment, it was the right thing to do. But once it was clear that the panic had passed, that actually our economy was doing pretty well, we were, unemployment was falling, then we should have um, taken another look and said, okay, maybe we need to stop <laughs> printing this money. Maybe we need to reimpose the LVR restrictions fast. Uh, maybe we need to claw back some of that unnecessary cash that we gave to a whole bunch of people who are already rich. And maybe we need to help out those people who are on very low incomes and haven't seen much or any of that cash that the government gave out. That was what I think the government should have done. It would have been much fairer. It wouldn't have been quite so inflationary. And uh, I think we would be in a position now where inflation would probably still be you know, higher than comfortable, but wouldn't be quite so high. Mm -hmm. And also we wouldn't see the particular pressure on rents that we're seeing right now mm -hmm. because um, that 40% increase in house prices has put the pressure on landlords to you know, put up the rent to try and increase the yield on what they're getting. But Bernard, didn't the experts see this coming? The Reserve Bank and other economists, did they not see this coming? Yeah, I mean, um, what they've experienced, what we've all experienced for 20 or 30 years is this constant, surprisingly low inflation where globalisation has continually dragged down the price of goods in particular as the global economy became a lot more uh, interconnected, supply chains started to extend, become more complex, 
dribble down into China and bounce back and forth. The introduction of China into the global economy from the year 2000 onwards transformed the inflationary outlook. And at the same time, uh, we had um, relatively low oil prices and commodity prices for a good chunk of that period. So a lot of central banks and economists thought, well, yeah, COVID's bad, but eventually we'll go back to normal. We all, we all thought it would be a bit faster than it has been. Mm. Uh, and also, uh, we weren't expecting a few things to happen on a geopolitical front. It's the end of an era, as Germany's nuclear phase-out enters its penultimate phase. Germany decided to shut down all its nuclear power plants because it was worried about a repeat of Fukushima. Germany is firmly resisting attempts by the EU Commission to classify nuclear energy as a sustainable technology. It is also fine-tuning the expansion of renewable energies. By 2030, 80% of the country's electricity is to come from wind turbines, solar panels or biogas plants. And also Germany and Europe decided to get slightly serious about reducing carbon emissions by shutting down all their coal-fired power plants. The end of coal is in sight. The world is moving in the right direction, standing ready to seal coal's fate and embrace the environmental and economic benefits of building a future that is powered by clean energy. So what that meant was Germany and Japan were having to spend more and focus more on using gas instead of coal for a lot of their power plants and also becoming more reliant on the likes of Russia uh, for their energy. Now, they thought that was a good idea at the time because they thought Putin wasn't going to do anything dumb, and they were wrong about that. Now it's hurting them. And also, uh, a lot of people underestimated the effects of climate change so fast on particularly uh, crop production, various weather disasters with fires and floods, and also the fact that economies bounced back and kept growing quite fast after the initial shock of COVID, in part because governments did a pretty good job of uh, stimulating monetarily and fiscally. Yeah. And that meant it was more demand for people to buy double cab utes and, and uh, drive their cars uh, all over the place. So that increased demand for oil and gas. It, eventually this inflation will subside and go away. It's just taking a lot longer and is a bit more intense than you expected. Well, when? Can you tell me when, Bernard? <laughs> when, when, can we, when can things get back to normal? Yeah, well, uh, all the um, economic forecasters say we're going to see inflation uh, start to tail off through the rest of this year, assuming the oil price doesn't rise too much more. And also, as we see a response from oil producers uh, who start to increase their production, and also we see a response from consumers as they look at the price at the pump and go, ugh, it's too much. I'm going to buy a smaller car or I'm not going to drive so much. So that's, that's why a lot of people expect inflation to head back down towards 3 4 5% over the next year or two. And, and we know that the government on Monday announced these fuel tax cuts, which are, are temporary. Is there anything else the government can do and is there anything else individuals can do? Yeah, the government could do an awful lot more to encourage people to get out of their cars and start 
cycling and walking and taking electric cars and electric bikes and electric scooters. And the government could actually say to New Zealand, this is a huge opportunity for us to wean ourselves off fossil fuels and more aggressively and faster move to a renewable energy, apart from anything else, because it's cheaper. And uh, the ways that the government could do that is to subsidise uh, more aggressively the purchase of uh, electric cars, hybrid cars, and also to you know ban really ugly, dirty cars that are still driving around but also are still being imported and um, use the government's balance sheet, which is incredibly lightly geared, are very strong to help those people who are in the most pain because of these petrol, food and rent prices. Help them with with cash, with subsidies, so that they can make the conversion to electric and also, you know, find other ways to live their lives that mean they don't spend hours and hours and hours a day commuting, which actually is not great for people's physical and mental health. No, but that's kind of further out, isn't it? I mean, immediately, because we're up against, you know, the high prices right now. Is there any more that can be done more immediately? Well, the government did a fantastic thing in that announcement by halving public transport costs. Why not completely remove them? Why not um, say we're on a war footing to get to carbon zero much faster, to reduce our reliance on crazy dictators like Putin and Mohammed bin, bin Salman. And we want to get there faster than we are at the moment. You know, it's amazing how much you can achieve in wartime, which is essentially you're using a crisis to get people to change their behaviour. In the history of the world, it's crises when people actually change their behaviour. And, hey, there is actually a war on, <laughs> a war on and it is a crisis. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom 4RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Adrian Holley and produced by Sarah Robson. And thanks to Bernard Hickey. Mā te wā.